Podcastle 145 for February 22nd, 2011. Heart and Boot by Tim Pratt. Rated R for sexuality and language. Hello and welcome to Pratt Castle. Podcastle. I I meant Podcastle. (laughs) I'm your host and co-editor Dave Thompson and geez, Pratt Castle? I guess that slip's understandable, though. In fact, I'm pretty sure we've run more stories by Tim Pratt than any other author here. Let's call it roughly 8%, but who's counting? And there might even be a few people out there who are thinking, wait, it feels like they just ran a Tim Pratt story last month. Well, that's because we did. The truth is, people, and by people I mean all of us, love Tim's stories. I'm sure all of us have a list somewhere deep inside our brains of our favorite Pratt stories. For some of us, it's a very long list, because as Hobson said not too long ago, everyone loves Tim Pratt. Personally, I'm starting to suspect he's kind of like Captain Fantasy. We pop in one of his stories for you all to listen to, and reality as we know it, or at least our perception of it, changes. Komodo dragons become sexy. We heed a different kind of call to adventure than the one our not-so-trusty magical whispering axe would have us undertake. We embrace fate and defy the fates. We work through our heartbreak. We slip backwards and forwards through time on epic quests of adventure. Well, today we've got another Prattastic story for you. Podcastle's very proud to present Heart and Boot. This was originally published in Polyphony 4, but one of its claims to fame is that it made someone else's best of lists. That someone would be Michael Shaven, infamous golem maker and winner of the Pulitzer Prize who selected this story for the year's best American fiction. Not year's best science fiction and fantasy, not year's best Tim Pratt, but it does have all the stuff we've come to love about Tim Pratt stories. It's sexy, it's funny, it's touching, it's got lots of heart, And most of all, it's just a really great story. Heart and Boot is narrated by Amy Elk, one of our new favorites here at Podcastle. You might remember her from Watermark or The Belated Burial. And I hope to hear her read many more for us. Amy's got a new podcast, On Vox, where she can be found interviewing voice actors. Check it out at onvoxshow.com or hire her as a voice actress by visiting amyelk.com. Now... Don't you dare go away from us and enjoy the story. Heart and Boot by Tim Pratt The man's head and torso emerged from a hole in the ground, just a few feet from the rock where Pearl Hart sat smoking her last cigarette. His appearance surprised her, and she cussed him at some length. The man stared at her during the outpouring of profanity, his mild face smeared with dirt his body still half-submerged. Pearl stopped cussing and squinted at him in the fading sunlight. He didn't have on a shirt, and Pearl, being Pearl, wondered immediately if he was wearing pants. "'Who the hell are you?' she demanded. She'd been sitting for hours here on the outskirts of a Kansas mining town, waiting for dark so she could find a bar and a man to buy her drinks." She was in a foul mood lately as her plans for a life of riotous adventure had thus far come to nothing. She'd fled a teenage marriage in Canada after seeing a Wild West show, complete with savage Indians and lady sharpshooters, and come west to seek her fortune among such fierce characters. Her career as an outlaw was not going well so far. 
The problem, of course, was men. The problem was always men. And the fact that she enjoyed many male qualities didn't change that fact. Seeing a man now, uninvited and interrupting her brooding, made her angry enough to spit in a sidewinder's eye. What are you doing in the ground? I'm not sure, the man said. Pearl couldn't place his accent. New England, maybe? What the hell's that mean? How'd you end up in a damn hole without knowing how you got there? He considered that for a moment, then said, You swear a lot for a woman. Pearl dropped the remains of her cigarette to the ground. I swear a lot for anybody. Are you a miner or something? She couldn't think of any other reason a man would be underground, popping up like a prairie dog, and even that didn't make much sense, not when you thought past the surface. A miner? Hmm. He chewed his lip. Could be. You have any money? Pearl said. She didn't have any more bullets, but she could hit him on the head with her gun if he had something worth stealing. I don't think so. She sighed. Get out of that hole. I'm getting a crick in my neck looking down at you. He climbed out and stood before her, covered in dirt from head to toe, naked except for a pair of better-than-average boots. Hardly standard uniform for a miner, but she didn't get flustered. She'd seen her share of naked men during her 18 years on Earth, and she had to admit he was one of the nicest she'd seen, dirt and all, with those broad shoulders. Back in Canada, after seeing the Wild West show, but before deciding to leave her husband, she'd had several dreams about a tall, faceless man coming toward her bed, naked, except for cowboy boots. Apart from the dirt and the lack of a bed, and her not being asleep and all, this was just like the dream. She finally looked at his face. He seemed uncomfortable, like a man afraid of making a fool of himself, half afraid he already has. Nice boots, she said. What'd you say your name was? He looked down at his feet, then back at her face. Boot? I'll just call you John, she said. This could work out. A handsome man, big enough to look threatening and clearly addle-brained. Just what she needed. John Boot. I'm Pearl Hart. She stood and extended her hand. After a moment's hesitation, he shook. Soft hands, like a baby's. No way he was a miner. That was all right. Whatever he was, he'd have a new trade soon enough. He'd be a stagecoach robber, just like in the Wild West show. Not on my account, honey, she said, dropping a hand below his waist and smiling when he gasped. But we ought to find you some clothes. If I lured a fellow about your size out behind a bar, you think you could hit him on the head hard enough to knock him out? I suppose so, Pearl, he said, as her experienced hand moved up and down on him. I'll do whatever you want, as long as you keep doing that. Heart and Boot robbed their way west. Pearl had tried to hold up a stagecoach once on her own without success. She'd stepped into the road, gun in hand, and shouted for the driver to stop. He slowed down, peered at her from his high seat, and burst out laughing. He snapped the reins and the horses nearly ran Pearl down, forcing her out of the road. A woman poked her head out the window as the stage passed, her face doughy, her mouth gaping. Pearl shot at her, irritated. 
The recoil stung her hand and she missed by a mile. Clearly she was not a natural lady sharpshooter. She needed a man, the right kind of man. One who could be tough and do the necessary, but also do as he was told. A man for the look of the thing, so people would take her seriously, and it would be best if he was a man she liked to fuck. She didn't believe such a man existed, except in her dreams, until she met John Boot. They had a simple and, to Pearl's mind, amusing method of robbing coaches. Pearl would stand weeping and wailing in the road wearing a tore-up dirty dress. There wasn't a stagecoach driver in the West who'd drive past a woman in need, and when they stopped, John Boot would emerge from cover, guns in hand. Pearl would pull her own weapons, and they'd relieve the coach of baggage, money, and mail. John Boot was always very polite, but what with Pearl's cussing, the bewildered victim seldom noticed. Despite her insistence that John Boot always pull out, Pearl got pregnant once during those wild months. She didn't even realize she'd caught pregnant until the miscarriage. After she'd passed it all, she just kicked dirt over the mess, glad to have avoided motherhood. John Boot wept when he found out about it, though, and Pearl, disturbed, left him to his tears. John Boot had depths she didn't care to explore. He mostly did whatever she told him and didn't argue back, which was all she wanted. But it was hard to think of him in terms of his simple usefulness when he cried. One night after Pearl came back from pissing behind a rock, she found John Boot staring up at the stars. Pearl sat with him, drunk a touch on whiskey, feeling good. She liked the stars, the big western sky, the first man in her life who wasn't more trouble than he was worth. We have to stop robbing coaches, Boot said. This display of personal opinion irritated Pearl. Why's that? They're on to us anyway, he said, not looking at her. There's not a coach left that'll stop for a woman in distress anymore. Hasn't failed us yet. Next time, he paused. I know, they'll come in shooting next time. Pearl considered. John Boot didn't talk much. Most men talked all the time and didn't know shit. Maybe with John Boot, the reverse was true. Damn, she said at last. Well, it couldn't last forever. But we don't have to stop. Just change our style. After that, they robbed coaches in the traditional manner, stepping from cover with guns drawn. That worked pretty well. One night in Arizona, Pearl had trouble sleeping. Seemed like every way she rolled, a rock struck her in her back or side, and the coyotes kept howling, and the big moon made everything too bright. She figured a good roll with John Boot might tire her out, so she went to wake him up. No man liked getting roused in the middle of the night, but when they got sex in return, they kept their complaints to a minimum. Pearl didn't believe in ghosts, but when she saw John Boot lying on his bedroll, she thought he'd died and become one. He held his familiar shape, but she could see the ground right through him, as if he were made of smoke and starlight. Pearl didn't faint away. She said, John Boot, stop this goddamn nonsense now! His solidity returned as he opened his eyes. Pearl, he said blearily, what? You're going like a ghost on me, John Boot, and I don't appreciate it. His eyes took on a familiar, pained, guarded look, the expression of a dog being scolded for reasons far beyond its comprehension. Sorry, Pearl, 
he said, which is about the only consistently safe response in their conversations. I need you, she said. And I need you, Pearl, he sat up, more than you know. Sometimes, when you aren't paying attention to me or you're not nearby, I get so tired and everything gets dim, kind of smoky. He shook his head. I don't understand it. It's like I'm not even strong enough to be real on my own. I want to stay for you. I think I have to, but I get so damn tired. John Boot almost never cussed. Pearl took his hand. Don't you dare go away from me, John Boot. Do you love me, Pearl? He asked, looking at her hand in his. Most men, she'd have said yes just to keep them quiet. But after these past months, she owed John Boot more than that. I don't know that I love you, but I wouldn't want you gone. He nodded. How long do you intend to live like this? As long as it's fun, she said. When it stops being fun, Pearl, will you let me go? Let me be tired and just see what happens to me then? Pearl sighed. Help me get these clothes off, John Boot. We'll figure this out later. All this talking makes me want to do something else. He smiled, and a little of the sadness and weariness receded from his eyes. The next day, a posse caught up with them, and once Pearl and John Boot were relieved of their weapons, it became clear that they were being charged with stagecoach robberies and murders. Someone was killing lone travelers in the area, and Hart and Boot were convenient to take the blame for that, though they had nothing to do with it. Pearl declared their innocence of all crimes, but she'd taken a pearl-handled gun in the last robbery, a distinctive weapon, and when the posse found that, it settled all questions in their minds. Pearl and John Boot never robbed another coach, and neither did anyone else. Stagecoaches and stagecoach robbers like Lady Outlaws and Wild Indians were dying breeds. Hart and Boot were the last of their kind. The lovers were taken to Pima County Jail in Florence, Arizona, a depressingly dusty place with no accommodations for women. For property's sake, the authorities decided to leave John Boot in Florence and take Pearl to a county jail in Tucson. She argued against that course with a blue streak of profanity, but they took her away all the same and Pearl was separated from John Boot for the first time since he'd crawled out of the ground in Kansas. Pearl sat in her cell, looking at the rough wooden partition that divided the women's quarters from the other half of the cell. She was wishing for a cigarette and thinking about John Boot. What if he just went to smoke in starlight again and disappeared? She wanted him with her, wanted him fiercely, and around midnight a knife point poked through the thin wooden partition. Pearl watched with interest as the knife made a ragged circular opening and a familiar head poked through. John Boot, she said, not without admiration. How'd you get out? And how'd you get here all the way from Florence? I'm not sure, he said. You wanted me, and I came. But it made me awfully tired. Can we go? Pearl crawled through the hole. The adjoining cell was unoccupied, the door unlocked, and they walked out together as if they had every right in the world to leave. We can be caught, but we can't be kept, she thought, elated as they stepped into the starry night. 
They stole horses and rode farther southwest because they hadn't been that way yet. A week later, they blundered into a posse in New Mexico. The men were looking for cattle rustlers, but they settled for heart and boot. Pearl offered the men sexual favors in exchange for freedom and called them every nasty name she could think of when they refused. John Boot just stood, unresisting, as if the strength had been sapped out of him, as if he'd seen all this coming and knew how it would end. The lovers were taken back to Florence. Pearl was beginning to hate that place, where they were put on trial immediately. The officers didn't want to keep them overnight and give them a chance to escape again. The judge, a bald man with pince-nez glasses, sentenced John Boot to 30 years in the Arizona Territorial Penitentiary, a place famed for its snake pit of a dungeon, tiny cells, and ruthless guards. John Boot listened to the sentence with his usual calm nodding to show he understood. Then the judge looked at Pearl and frowned, clearly undecided about how to deal with her. I'm young, she thought, and a woman, so he thinks I got railroaded into this, that I'm John Boot's bedwarmer, a little girl led astray. Pearl couldn't abide that. What the hell are you waiting for, you silly old bastard? She asked. John Boot winced. The judge reddened and then said, I sentence you to five years in the same place. He banged his gavel and Pearl blew him a kiss. She'd never been to prison before. She figured she wouldn't like it, but didn't expect to be there for very long. She was right on the first account, but sadly wrong on the second. Pearl and John Boot weren't separated during the long ride through the desert, and Pearl vented her fury at him as they bounced along in the back of the wagon under armed guard. Thirty years he gave you, and me five. They think five years will knock the pissin' wildcat out of me? How do you stay so energetic all the time? John Boot asked. You've got enough strength of will for any two people. I'm surprised fire and lightning don't come shooting out of your ears sometimes. Pearl rode silently for a long time, thinking on that. You reckon that's how you came to be? She asked, looking down at her knees. Some of that fire and lightning I've got too much of spilled out and made you. They'd never really talked about this before, about where John Boot came from, where he might someday return, and Pearl looked up in irritation when he didn't reply. He was sleeping, head leaning back against the side of the cart. Pearl sighed. At least she couldn't see the boards through his head this time. He hadn't gone to smoke in starlight. She let him be. Pearl and John Boot climbed out of the wagon and stood in the rocky prison yard. The landscape outside was ugly, just flat desert and the dark water of the Colorado River, but the prison impressed her. Pearl had never seen a building so big. It seemed more a natural part of the landscape than something man-made like a palace for a scorpion queen. Put out that cigarette, the warden snapped. His wife stared at Pearl sternly. The warden looked tough, Pearl thought, and his stringy wife in her colorless dress looked even tougher. Pearl flashed a smile. She took a last drag off her cigarette and flicked it away. John Boot looked from Pearl to the warden to the warden's wife like a man watching a snake stalking a rat. Welcome to the Arizona Territorial Penitentiary, the warden said. His boots aren't nearly as nice as John's, Pearl thought. 
I hear you two are escape artists, the warden said. Well, you can forget about that nonsense here. He began to pace, hands knotted behind him. Back the way you came, there's 50 miles of desert crawling with scorpions, snakes, and Indians. The Indians get a reward for bringing back escapees, $50 a head, and we don't care how banged up the prisoners get on the way. They'd love to catch a woman out there, Hart. We'd get you back, but you wouldn't be the same, and I truly don't want that to happen to you, no matter how bad you are. I bet I could teach them Indians a few things, Pearl said. The warden paused in his pacing, then resumed. Keep your tongue in your mouth, girl. Besides the desert, there's two branches of the Colorado River bordering this prison, moving fast enough that you can't swim across. Then there's the charming town of Yuma, he pointed west. You try to go that way, and the folks in town will shoot you. They're not real friendly. He turned smartly on his boot heel and paced the other way. That's not real important, though, because you won't get outside. The cells are carved into solid granite, so you can't cut your way out with a pocket knife. He pointed to a tower at one corner of the wall. That's a Gatling gun on a turret up there. It can sweep the whole yard. There was an attempted prison break not long ago, and my wife manned the gun. Cut those convicts down. Ladylike, said Pearl. Mighty Christian, too. The wife stiffened and crossed her arms. I'm not happy about having you here, Hart, the warden said, putting his face close to hers, exhaling meat and tobacco-laden breath. I had to tear out six bunks to make a ladies-only cell for you, and we had to hire a seamstress to make a special uniform. Shit, you dumb bastard, she said. I'll sleep anywhere and just as soon go naked as whatever burlap sack you've got for me. John Boot groaned. We're going to clean that back talk out of you, Hart, the warden said. He turned to the guards. Get this man to his cell, he said, pointing at John Boot. My wife and I will escort Miss Hart to her quarters. The guards led John Boot away. The warden later wrote that Boot looked distinctly relieved to be leaving his lover. Pearl went with the warden and his wife through an archway into a cramped corridor. Iron bars filled every opening, and the low ceiling made her want to duck, even though her head cleared it by a good margin. The hall smelled like sweat and urine. Did you enjoy shooting those boys, Mrs. Warden? Feeling that big gun jump and buck in your hands? That's enough, Hart, the warden said. Get in. He pointed to an open cell door. Pearl could see the bolt holes on the wall where the bunks had been removed. A curtain hung from the ceiling, blocking the open pit latrine from view. She'd expected open-faced cells like at the county jail, but these cells had real doors. Cozy, Pearl said and sauntered in. Men hollered unintelligibly down the corridor. We're going to make every effort to guard your modesty, the warden said. You'll never be alone with a man. My wife or a female attendant will accompany me and the guards if we ever need to see you privately. Doesn't sound like much fun, Pearl said. Maybe just one man alone with me every couple of days. You could hold a lottery, maybe. She showed her teeth. The warden shut the door without a word. Pearl sat on the bunk for a while, thinking. The cell was tiny, with a narrow window set high in one rock wall. She'd roast all day and freeze all night, she knew. John Boot had better get her out soon. 
She got bored, and after a while she went to the door, looking out the iron grill set in the wood. Hey, boys, she yelled. I'm your new neighbor, Pearl. Hoots and whistles came down the hall. I bet you get lonely in here. How'd you like to pass some time with me? She went on to talk as dirty as she knew how, which was considerable. She wondered if John Boot was in earshot. He liked it when she talked like this, though he always blushed. The men howled like coyotes and the guards came shouting. Pearl sat down on the bunk again. She'd wait until the men quieted down, then start yelling again. That should get under the warden's skin and pass the time until John Boot came to set her free. Pearl woke when John Boot touched her shoulder. She sat up, brushing her hair away from her face. John Boot looked tense and dusty. Are we on our way then? Pearl asked. He shook his head, sitting down beside her. I don't think I can get us out, Pearl. What do you mean? You got into my cell so you can get us out. I can get myself out, sure, he laughed forlornly. Walls don't take much notice of me, sometimes. But you're different. Back in Tucson, I had to cut you an opening. He thumped his fist on the granite wall. I can't do that here. You could steal keys, Pearl said, thinking furiously. Take a guard prisoner and... She trailed off. There was the Gatling gun to think of and 50 miles of desert, if they somehow did make it out. What are we going to do? You've only got five years, he said. And you, being a woman, if you behaved yourself... No! They ain't winning, or if they do win, I'll make them miserable so they can't enjoy it. You keep looking, John Boot. Every place has holes. You find one we can slip out of, here. I'll try, Pearl, but... He shook his head. Don't expect too much. Long as you're here, Pearl said, unbuttoning her shirt. No, he said. It's tiring, Pearl, going in and out like this. It's not hard to get dim, but it's hard to come back. Look at me. He held up his hand. It shook like a coach bouncing up and down a bumpy road. You're about as much good as bloomers in a whorehouse, John Boot, she said. Go on back to bed then. She watched him, curious to see how he moved in and out of impossible places. He stood, then cleared his throat. I don't think I can go with you watching me. I always feel more altogether when you're paying close attention to me. Pearl turned away. I thought only ladies were supposed to be modest. She listened closely, but heard nothing except the distant coughs and moans of the other prisoners. She turned, and John Boot was gone, passed through her cell walls like a ghost. Hell, she thought. Now I'm up, and I won't be able to fall back asleep. She took a deep breath, then loosed a stream of curses at the top of her lungs. The prisoners down the hall shouted back angrily, and soon cacophony filled the granite depths of the prison. After listening to that for a while, Pearl slept like a babe. Pearl gave up on John Boot after about a month, but she didn't figure out a better idea for two years. The boredom nearly crushed her sometimes, but the time passed. She got to see John Boot a lot, at least. He came to her almost every night and seemed weaker every time. 
The warden was in here the other day, she said one night. John Boot sat against the wall, tired after his latest half-hearted search for an escape route. Telling me what a model prisoner you are, how you never spit on the guards at bed check or raise a fuss in the middle of the night. They said you're practically rehabilitated and that you'd want me to behave myself. She punched her thin mattress. They still think I'm a helpless innocent led astray by your wicked ways, even though I've done my damnedest to show them otherwise. Stupid bastards. John Boot nodded. He'd heard all of this before. Pearl, sitting on the edge of her bunk, leaned toward him. I'm tired of being here, John Boot. Two years, and there's only so much hell I can raise from inside a stone box. We have to leave this place. I don't see how. Listen a minute. All my life I've hated being a woman. Well, not hated being one, but hated the way people treated me and expected me to act. It's about time I used that against the bastards, don't you think? John Boot looked interested now. He hadn't heard this before. What do you mean? She crossed her legs. I mean, it's time for you to leave, John Boot. Go ghost on me. Fade away. Get as tired as you want. I think if you hadn't been coming to see me every night, you'd have turned to smoke a long time ago. His face betrayed equal parts of confusion and hope. But why? How will my leaving help? She told him what she had in mind. That might work, he said. But if it doesn't, then I'll figure out something else. Don't waste time, all right? I'm not up for a sentimental goodbye. He put his hand on her knee. One last? She considered. Why not? Just be sure to pull out. I don't want to start my free life with a swelled-up belly. After, he lay against her in the narrow bunk. I'm a little nervous now, he said. I'll miss you. She stretched her arms over her head, comfortable. I wouldn't think it. You've seemed pretty eager to get away. Well, in a way, don't you ever want to go to sleep and never have to wake up again? No, she said truthfully. I'll sleep plenty when I'm dead. He was quiet for a moment and then said, I don't think I have a choice about loving you. Pearl touched his hair, letting her usual defenses slip a little. I'll miss you too, John Boot. You're the only man I could ever stand for more than a night at a time. But it's time I let you go. Don't look, he said, getting out of bed. She closed her eyes. Goodbye, Pearl, he said, his voice faint. He went away. It took two days for anyone to notice that John Boot was gone. He'd been so unassuming that they overlooked his empty cell at the first bed check. When the warden and his wife came to tell Pearl that John Boot had escaped, she made a big show of breaking down and crying, saying, He told me to stay strong, that we'd walk out here together, and as long as I didn't give in to you, he wouldn't leave me. Weeping with her face in her hands, she could glimpse the warden and his wife through her fingers. They exchanged sympathetic looks. They believed it, the stupid bastards. They still believed that John Boot was the cause of Pearl's bad behavior. Pearl's behavior changed completely after that. In the following weeks, she began wearing a dress and having polite conversation with the warden's wife, and even started writing poetry, the sappiest, most flowery stuff she could, all about babies and sunlight and flowers. 
The warden's wife loved it, her tough exterior softening. Pearl, she said once, I feel like you and I are much the same underneath it all. It was all Pearl could do to keep from laughing, talk like this, from the woman who'd once gunned down a yard full of convicts. That was no stranger than a stagecoach robber writing poems, maybe. Black bar aside, of course. But with Pearl, it was an act. She missed John Boot a little, but if his leaving could help her get out of prison, it was worth it. The warden told Pearl that, with John Boot's influence lifted, she was blossoming into a fine young woman. Two months after John Boot escaped, the warden and his wife came to visit Pearl again, both of them smiling like cowboys in a whorehouse. "'The governor's coming to inspect the prison soon, Pearl,' the warden said. "'I've talked to him about your case, discussed the possibility of giving you a pardon and an early release, and he wants to meet with you.' "'That would be just fine,' Pearl said demurely, thinking, "'Hot damn, about time!' The governor came into her cell, middle-aged and serious. He wore a nice gray suit and boots with swirling patterns in the leather. The warden and his wife introduced him to Pearl, then stood off to the side, beaming at their new favorite prisoner. The governor looked at them, raised an eyebrow, and said, "'Could I have a little time alone with Miss Hart to discuss her situation?' The warden and his wife practically fell over themselves getting out the door. The governor stood up and closed the cell door. A little privacy, he said. Sir, I'm so glad you decided to meet with me, Pearl began. She'd been practicing this speech for days. It had loads of respect, repentance, and a fair bit about Jesus. If it didn't get her a pardon, nothing would. Yes, well, he said, interrupting her. He took out a pocket watch from his vest and looked at it and frowned. Then he looked Pearl up and down and grunted, "'How bad do you want a pardon, girl?' Pearl kept smiling, though she didn't like that look in his eyes. "'Very much, Governor. I've learned my lesson. I—' "'Listen, little girl. That's enough talking. I don't care how sorry you are for what you've done. You're in the worst goddamn place in the whole desert. Of course you're sorry. Even a rattlesnake would repent his sinful ways if he got locked up here.' Now, I don't have a whole lot of time. There's one way for you to get a pardon, and it doesn't have anything to do with talking, if you see what I mean. Pearl stared at him, her eyes narrowed. He looked at his watch again. Look, you can just bend over your bunk there. You don't even need to take off your dress. I'll just lift it up. You go to hell, you bastard, Pearl said, crossing her arms. If he tried to touch her, she'd put a hurt on him like he'd never felt before. She almost hoped he did touch her. The governor was just like all the others, like her husband, like all the men she'd met before John Boot. Boot seemed like just about the only good man in the world, and she'd pretty much had to make him up out of her own mind, hadn't she? The governor went white in the face, then red. You're going to rot here, Miss Hart. You could have given me five minutes of your time, done what you've probably done with hundreds of filthy men and been free. But instead, I may have done it with filthy men, Pearl said, but I've never done it yet with a nasty old pig like you. The governor rapped on the door and a guard came to let him out. He left without a word. The warden and his wife bustled in soon after and asked how it went. Pearl thought about telling him, but what was the use?
It went just fine, she said. That night, for the first time in years, Pearl cried. Pearl dreamed of lying in her old bedroom in Canada, giving birth. The baby slid out painlessly, crying, and she picked it up, unsure how to hold it, wrinkling her nose in distaste. The baby looked like a miniature version of the governor, with piercing eyes and grim lines around his mouth. The baby's tongue slid out over its lips, and Pearl hurled the thing away in disgust. It hit the knotty pine wall and bounced. When it landed, its face had changed, and John Boot's eyes regarded her sadly. Pearl sat up in the dark of her cell, shivering, but not because the dream disturbed her. She shivered with excitement because she saw a possibility, a chance at a way out. She lay back down and thought fondly of John Boot, her wonderful John Boot, her lover, her companion, calling to him in her mind. Nothing happened, except for time passing and Pearl's frustration rising. Finally, she fell asleep again, fists clenched tight enough to leave nail marks in her palms. Pearl, John Boot said. She opened her eyes, sitting up. It was still dark, but Pearl felt like dawn was near. John Boot was on the floor. No, in the floor. Half in a hole, just like the first time she'd met him. Am I dreaming? she asked. No, I'm really here. You felt very angry, Pearl. It pulled me back. Maybe that's where I went wrong, she thought. I tried to think sweet thoughts and call him that way, and he didn't feel a thing. But when I got mad, it was like the first time. Here he comes. Pulled you back from where? Someplace I was sleeping, sort of. Pearl knelt on the hard granite floor and extended her hand. He took it warily, as if expecting her to try and break his fingers. I'm not mad at you, John Boot, she said. She wondered about the hole. It would no doubt close up when she wasn't paying attention, as modest in its way as John Boot was himself. Then what's wrong? he asked, letting her help him out of the hole. Did your plan work? Are you getting a pardon? He sat cross-legged on the floor, naked again except for his fine boots. She hesitated. She planned to use John Boot, no two ways about it. Pearl seldom shrank from saying hurtful things, but she hadn't ever hurt John Boot on purpose, and he'd done a lot for her. A little lie to spare his feelings wouldn't do any harm now. That's right, I'm getting pardoned, she said. The governor was very impressed with me. I'm just angry that I have to wait for the order to go through and that I'm stuck here a few days more and that I'm going to be alone out there without you. He lowered his head. You want me to come back? I wouldn't ask for that. She put her hand on his bare knee. But I want something special to remember you by. What? Sleep with me, John Boot. And don't pull out this time. I want to have your baby. We'll do it as many times as we have to. Tonight, tomorrow, as long as it takes. You mean it, Pearl? He said, taking her hand. Really? Yes. She got on the bed. I want your baby in the worst way. He came to her. A little later, lying tight against him in the narrow bed, she said, Let's go again. We've got enough time before bed check. 
We can if you want, he said sleepily, but we don't have to. Why? Because it took. She pushed herself up on her elbow and looked at him. What do you mean? The baby, it took. You're kindled. He looked into her eyes. I can feel it. I felt it the other time, too, when you lost it. I wish... He shrugged. But it's all right now. Oh, John Boot, you've made me so happy. I should go. Wait until dawn. I want to see your face in the morning light one more time. He held her. When the sun came, he kissed her cheek. I have to go. She nodded, then looked away to give him his privacy. No, he said, touching her cheek. You can look this time. She watched. He dissolved like the remnant of a dream, first his warmth fading, then his skin turning to smoke, until finally he disappeared all the way, leaving Pearl with nothing in her arms but emptiness and a tiny spark of life in her belly. Pearl waited two months, still behaving herself. Each time she saw the warden, she made a point of anxiously asking if he'd heard from the governor. They hadn't, and the warden's wife clucked her tongue and said everything would work out. Pearl had no doubt about that. After two months, Pearl asked to see a nurse. The woman examined her, and Pearl told her she'd missed two months in a row. The nurse blushed, but didn't ask probing questions. She went to report her findings to the warden. Pearl's pregnancy created a difficult situation. As far as anyone knew, only one man had been alone with Pearl during her years of incarceration, and that man was the governor. He would say he hadn't slept with Pearl, of course, but she would say otherwise, and publicity like that wouldn't do anybody any good. She knew the governor would take the obvious way out and avoid the scandal. She didn't have to wait long. In light of your delicate circumstances, the warden said two days later, not meeting her eyes, the governor has decided to grant you a pardon. It's about damn time, Pearl said. On the day of her release, a guard gave her a ride to the nearest train station. Pearl looked at the desert where she'd had her adventures, at the harsh ground that had birthed John Boot. She laced her hands over her belly, content. There were a lot of reporters at the train station. They'd gotten wind of her plans. Pearl had decided that life as an outlaw was all well and good, but it demanded too much sleeping rough and missing meals. She had a baby to think about now. Originally, she'd planned to get rid of the baby at the earliest opportunity, but she was having second thoughts. Pearl had a job all lined up as a traveling lecturer. A lady outlaw with risque stories could really pack a room, and it wouldn't be nearly so strenuous as sharpshooting in a Wild West show. She wasn't much good with a gun anyway. She waved to the reporters as she boarded the train. They only knew that she'd been pardoned, not why. They shouted questions, but she didn't pay much attention. Her mind was on other things. One question got through to her. Pearl, the reporter shouted, are you going to meet up with John Boot? They still thought she needed a man after all this time. Would that ever change? You're a stupid bastard, she replied mildly and followed the porter to her compartment.
And welcome back. Since we're fantasy geeks, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess we've probably all felt like outsiders at one time or another, like Pearl in this story. Who knows that because she's a woman, they'll never believe in her worth as an individual. But at some point, I guess you gotta realize anyone who can't see that worth is just a stupid bastard anyway. And who cares how anyone else defines us? It's all about how we define ourselves. Also, hats off to Tim Pratt. There really aren't too many authors I'm aware of who can make a cosmic weird western romance poignant, sexy, and also really funny. Maybe someone out there has just found the new Tim Pratt favorite. Alright, feedback this week is for Amal El Motar's To Follow the Waves, read by Marguerite Croft, a Syrian steampunkian love story about the emerging technology of dream crafting. Generally, people really enjoyed it. Wait, did I just call it steampunkian? Well, you all had quite a bit to say about that. A few people thought we were maybe stretching the genre vocabulary by suggesting this story as steampunk. Swamp thought the story was beautiful, but said, I'm not sure where the steampunk was in this story. I like the fact that steampunk doesn't have to take place in London, but was there anything technology-based about it? I saw a lot of magical metaphysical stuff with the dream-making and the quartz. Is that the anachronistic technology I'm looking for? Electric Paladin thought, It was smooth, sexy, and unique. I particularly enjoyed... Damn, everything. My psychic landscape has been colonized and oppressed by steampunk Damascus. We'll have to wait and see what comes of it. And Schreiber said, I really love this story. The language, the arc, and Miss Croft's reading were entrancing and agonizing in turn. But what really struck me was the reveal that Hessa had pulled Nala, the real Nala, into her client's dreams. While I certainly wouldn't go so far as to say the author was hitting the reader over the head with the metaphor, the tearful confrontation in the dream realm felt very meta to me. The question of what us scribblers are entitled to put our grubby little paws on isn't just academic, and it definitely doesn't have to be dry or bloodless. The consequences of desire, the eroticism of power, the crushing sense of guilt that comes from telling a story the only way you know how to tell it, no matter the cost, all that touches a nerve. Well, thanks so much to all of you for those comments. We at PodCastle are able to keep bringing you story after story thanks to you, our audience, and your generous donations. Your money goes to paying authors such as Tim Pratt, and all your donations are greatly appreciated. Just a heads up, we're cooking up something really special for those of you who sign up for our 5 or $10 a month subscription model. I know I mentioned this before briefly in the last couple weeks, I'm sorry to be so coy, but I'm pretty sure you all are really going to dig it. If nothing else, it'll keep me from having to put on a bonnet to entice wagons to slow down so Anna can jump out and hijack them. And trust me, a bonnet is really not my best look. So thanks. Also, I hope you all don't mind me asking one more favor of you, but I was checking out the reviews on PodCastle at iTunes and... I think I counted like five reviews since Anna and I have begun editing here. So if you like this week's story or want to help spread the podcast of love for free, writing an iTunes review would be mighty fine and much appreciated. Well, that's all for this week, folks. Thanks so much for letting PodCastle share another story with you. PodCastle's made up of sharpshooting Ann Leckie, transparent but cosmic Peter Wood, and your outlaw ringleaders and escaped convicts, Anna Schwend and myself, Dave Thompson. Who has better boots? Well, we'll never tell. We'll be back next time with our next podcastle giant, courtesy of Cat Rambo and Jeff Vandermeer. Until then, 
Podcastle, being Podcastle, is wondering whether or not you're wearing any pants. Anna made me ask that. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Marilyn Monroe said, I'm selfish, impatient, and a little insecure. I make mistakes, I am out of control, and at times hard to handle. But if you can't handle me at my worst, then you sure as hell don't deserve me at my best.